Welcome to Slayer Fest 98. I'm your host, Ian Carlos Crawford, and today I'm joined by some really lovely Scoobies. Uh, in this corner, I have my Willow. Louis Peitzman. Hi, Louis. Hi. And in this corner, I have Artara. Oh, I, I am codependent and love a Renaissance gown. Hi, it's Anthony Oliveira. <laughs> And the other corner, I have Anya. Hi, I hate bunnies. I'm Joe Reed. <laughs> and then our watcher, Giles. Hi, I'm devastatingly sexy, Kirsten White. It's true. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't say a fun thing. I could have been like, you know, the whole thing about being mostly filler would have been good there, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I was say, Louis, you just say it now and I can just edit it in. No, it's fine. It's fine. No, this is way better. Keep yes. all this. This is good. <laughs> Okay, so we're all here to discuss the season six episode, Once More with Feeling. I thought about sending it for a second, and then I decided not to. Um, I wanted to start with us all discussing, if we remember, our first time watching the episode, because I have a little funny story. I was a freshman in college, living in a dorm at Rutgers, and a girl that I pretended to have a crush on because I was closeted was like, oh my god, I love Buffy, you love Buffy, you should come over and we should watch a musical together. And we watched it together, and I remember her telling me how much she shipped Giles and Buffy, which was <laughs> weird. <laughs> a horrible, horrible take. Oh, no. She's canceled. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be like, no, but it's like a dad and a daughter. It's not. It's very decidedly a dad and a daughter. Where is this person? I want to call them up right now. <laughs> Put them on. Put them on so yes, we can cancel them. Seriously. Yeah. Uh, Anthony, what was your first time watching oh, this Oh, mine is so boring. I I mean, I my, my family. Family history is long and complicated, but I like went to an all boys Catholic, so you can imagine how closeted. So Tuesday nights, I had my ritual where I um, I, I got like this giant vase filled it with ice and just drank Coca Cola and watched Buffy at eight p.m. and then Angel at nine, and it was very boring. But I was very excited when that's all I remember about watching. <laughs> yeah, Kirsten, do you remember? I did not watch this episode when it was airing because uh, when Willow also came canceled. out as a lesbian, we weren't allowed to watch it anymore. Oh, oh! My family has changed very much since then. Um, but so I w- I watched this first as an adult. I think I was probably like twenty three. I was renting the DVDs from the library because uh, it was the only place I could walk to, and I had two kids. So yeah, I just I, I loved the episode. I laugh watching it now because even then, um, as I was married and had two kids, all of the incredible innuendo of Tara's song flew right over my head. <laughs> Who are your parents that they were like this media savvy that they were like this specific show? My parents wouldn't have known what was happening on Buffy if I had read them episode synopses the morning after every episode. My parents to this day call all my interests the Buffies. That's how hooked in, <laughs> that's how hooked in they are to my life. Like. That's so cute. No, my mom actually watched Buffy with us. Like, we watched it together. That's amazing. Oh, so the demon summoning was fine. It's just the... <laughs> right. Yeah, no, that's all fine. That's all fine. I see. They, didn't, they weren't worried we were going to go out and summon demons. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which I definitely tried to do more than once. There yeah. was a plural <laughs> amount of times that happened. My mom just never got that they were supposed to be a couple. would always be like, oh, you're... You're making that up. My mom did watch it. I mean, she didn't really care, but she always assumed that I was just making it up. Um, yeah. You were you were projecting your 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 weird lesbian yeah. fantasies onto the show. Yeah. Did your mom also ship Giles and Buffy? 
That is so that is so awful. I hate that. I truly hate that. My skin is crawling. Yeah. Joe, do you remember your first time watching? Um, it? Well, speaking of uh, being closeted in shame, um, when I was in college, I would record Buffy episodes on a VHS. Uh, while they were airing like in prime time and then like wait for a moment that like all my roommates were out at classes and then would watch it in the afternoon because you know again closeted and shameful um but Mm -hmm. this was when i was a scene this aired when i was a senior and i commuted that year so i got to watch it by myself in the tv room in my parents house just like every normal weird gay kid (laughs) back then so uh lewis first of all i like that all of our stories reflect that we are gay and old yeah Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> look at our traumas children <laughs> look at them <laughs> i actually um this was the first episode of buffy that i ever watched and oh, wow. i yeah i i had put it off for whatever reason um and then i uh decided to watch because i love musicals um because i was a closeted baby gay i'm very young and uh i remember watching her <laughs> famously, young. famously young and i remember watching this um but i missed the ending because Smallville was going to be airing at like nine and on a different channel yeah. and the episode ran long. Yeah. It was like 68 minutes or something like that. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so I had to end the episode before, you know, the big conclusion because I had to watch Smallville because God forbid I missed <laughs> like one minute of Tom Welling shirtless. Get into the episode <laughs> we're here to talk about. Um, I wanted to read the book Slayers of Vampires. That's like a uncensored, unauthorized oral history of Buffy the Vampire Slayer by Edward Gross and Mark Altman, where it's just a bunch of quotes that they they found from like interviews and stuff to make like an oral history. And I wanted to start with, there's a Stephen DeKnight quote about it. He says, he heard when he first came onto the show, he heard rumors, oh yeah, Joss is learning how to play the piano because he wants to do a musical. And he says, and then the next year, Joss disappeared to the East Coast for a week or two. After a couple of weeks, we all get a package that's a script and a CD. He had written the musical in that period of time along with the songs and recorded them with his wife. I didn't realize that they like, I don't know, I assumed it was something they all planned together from the way Jane usually, Jane Spencer usually talks about the planning of the show when she comes on. And then I just have uh, a Marty Noxon one. She says, he spent the majority of the summer writing the music and figuring out exactly how it was going to work. It was a lot more time and a lot more production value than a usual episode, but it was well worth it. It was like an invitation for everybody. So yeah, uh, Kristen, would you like to start us off with your thoughts on the opening? Uh, first of all, the opening credits make me laugh. Like, I love that they did different opening credits and that they're so yeah. deeply cheesy. <laughs> I approve. And then, yeah, that whole that whole opening scene. The next night note I have is Buffy's angst art. Oh, what? oh, when she's catching like the black box. Yeah, I don't think I had <laughs> noticed that, or at least like made note of it before this uh, this viewing. It was intense. Yeah, she's an artist. What is Buffy drawing? Oh, no. She's drawing a black oh, hole. Oh, see, of I thought it was she yeah. was sketching, like, the light as she was getting out of the coffin. Like, she's sort of digging. Right. Crawling her way out of her own grave. Yeah. Yeah. Could be that as well. I like a lot of the beginning. I like the the widescreen for start. Yes. Like, it's nice to see. It's sort of become... Yeah. Buffy is notorious now for how it gets cut and chopped and like reframed into widescreen. It's like Faith and Buffy are fighting and there's a camera crew on the right. And it's nice to, if you haven't watched this episode properly, you should do that on a proper widescreen with the original cut. Do that. I also like that Buffy just like sits through her alarm clock going. (laughs) That's a big cartoony alarm clock too. Like it sets the stage right away. I love that. Yeah. 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 
And the movement of the scene is so nice, like as it's moving through the house and like all of the motion and everybody's interacting with each other and Buffy's so separate. Like it's it's a it's a very yeah. well mm-hmm. choreographed sequence. And it does feel like the beginning of a musical. Yeah. I was gonna say I just love that there's an overture because overtures are a dying yeah. we we don't really get overtures in musicals anymore. Um there is one in Tootsie currently on Broadway. Oh, no kidding. It's very rare to like hear an actual overture. Um, and you can tell that Joss was like, you know, we have a lot of different musical styles in the episode, but he clearly was like inspired by a lot of classic uh, musicals and having an overture is a great nod to that. Yeah. in the So in the DVD commentary, which, yes, I did pull out my DVD player and my Buffy DVDs to listen to it. Joss does say he like always wanted to do the musical. He even talks about how this is like definitely a sequel to Hush, which, duh. And he talks how he felt like they had to do widescreen to give it a more classical whatever feel and the episode is intentionally brighter and the outfits are very intentional mm-hmm. which i guess has mm-hmm. to be specifically willow and tara because they're the ones that are like dressed like they're they walked out of sleeping beauty or whatever yeah <laughs> you don't think that tara was like wearing renfer outfits every day just for fun because i feel like <laughs> she was i i love in that scene where they're like those boys are checking you out it's like it's you because you are dressed yeah like like some kind clown. of renaissance clown like <laughs> <laughs> I love, love that gown, but it is attention grabbing. Yeah. Those boys are two gays being like, oh my God, look at that dress. <laughs> uh, the problem with that Ren Fair outfit is that like, it's hard to imagine how they would have been having uh, sex in that outfit. Mm. It doesn't really make sense to me. If she were wearing like a skirt, I can see how that scene would have played out, but I guess it was a, it was a magical um, cunnilingus moment. So but like that- lesbian sex is a mystery to me. I don't know. I don't yeah. know any, like, it, it's like I'm, this is beyond my ken, so. <laughs> it, 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 I have questions about the freak. We're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll get there. Oh, Ian's in a mad. Moment. Ian's mad. We're off the train. <laughs> Sorry, Ian. <laughs> Um, I feel like I'm yelling at Anthony for this every time we Anthony, do this. Anthony, just mention Hamlet and get us back on track. <laughs> uh, I, oh, the other thing I like about this opening is uh, Willow is fussing about clothes. A nice little character callback. Like she is, she grabs, a, she runs back and grabs a sweater exactly the same way she did in the body. Yeah. While Tara is clocking the herb under her yeah. pillow, which I think means this is the next night then after Halloween. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah. Which means that these these like four episodes are like night to night to night, right? Like Halloween into the musical, yeah. into Tabula Rasa. They're like, it is a very exhausting week for the Scooby. I guess, yeah. It's now it's always Tuesday. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So then we go into go directly to Buffy Slaying, which is actually um spoiler, one of my favorite scenes. For me, this is like peak absurdity of Buffy that I love so much where it's like she's doing the thing she always does but she's just also singing and dancing yeah. and the mm-hmm. demons are also sing- like I like that the demons join in on it that's my favorite part yeah. uh, and in the commentary Joss Whedon says that he did he like purposely did that whole first Buffy song um, going through the motions like as very Disney and he wanted it to be like Ariel from Little Mermaid singing part of your world uh, he also says and Lois I'm sure you no, he said there's a Pippin reference at the end, but he made it just enough not like Pippin so they wouldn't get sued. Um, I mean, I can't imagine he would have gotten sued for that. Um, but also, I'm not a Pippin gay, so I can't really be of much help there. Oh, I think his point is that it ends with a very Stephen Schwartzy kind of sound that like sort of, I don't know musical theory, but that alive note is very like... yeah minor key-ish like it has a weird flutter to it this whole episode has this thing that fascinates me where the prettier something sounds the more of a lie it is like like when building to sort of buffy's climactic thing like when it's pretty 
it's it's seductive. It's the song she doesn't want to be singing. Right. And then it ends with that terrible. I, I'm sort flat of obsessed. Note, yeah. Yeah. That flat heaven note where it's yep. like, oh, I hate the sound of heaven. Yep. And it's yep. like, yep. I love that. And I love that the prettier something is, the more troubling it is. Even like um, Tara's song, like it sounds very pretty. It is very lovely, but it is also like absolutely about how codependent their relationship is and is completely yeah. undermined by the fact that mm-hmm. she is literally under her spell right Dance so dance number is the same thing yeah, yeah um, exactly yeah since we're talking disney though i mean it is sort of like a classic i want song it's a little bit oh, yeah. less you know direct in terms of what she wants because really what she wants is to not feel like she's going through the motions as it were that's the song title but uh <laughs> you got it you yeah. get it <laughs> thank you um so, but no i mean it's it's she's clearly like it she's singing kind of very directly about like what's going wrong with her life and what she wants yeah. to have happen like she outright says i want like yeah. right that is that is the standard sort of opening for a musical and and lots of people who study musicals think that all musicals have an I want song, um, which they definitely don't. Right. But um, you know, a lot of Disney movies do. So, well, and the little mermaid thing is cool mm-hmm. because the, the big shot of that, of uh, going through the motions is when she dusts the vampire and her face sort of like emerges through it. When she says, I just want to be alive, <laughs> which is like Ariel yeah. in the sea spray in the part of your world reprise when she yeah. just sort of like lifts herself up on the rock, which is like, the greatest moment ever but it's just like i i laugh at that because it's just like you know instead of sea spray it's just like gross vampire dust <laughs> i love the random the random like the random honk who shows yes. up i wonder like oh, what man. he was doing there if he is like a real person or just like a figment of this musical fantasy like where did he go after <laughs> what's his number what's his at yeah what's his instagram <laughs> i like the symbolism of that of just sort of like you know sort of like restating the premise of the show of Buffy, which is just like, she's not the damsel, she's the hero. And now she doesn't mm-hmm. care about the man being yeah. the damsel. But I also was just like, man, have you watched any of this series? Buffy wouldn't have gone for you. And if she did, the fandom <laughs> would have hated you. So totally. Yeah. But I, I, mean, I, I just I just logistically want to know where that guy came from and where he went. It was a great line, though, where he's like, how can I thank yeah. you? And she's like, whatever. I love her bored look with him. Like, she just can't yeah. even pretend to be bothered. Which is what's, like, amazingly ambitious yeah. about this. Like, while we're saying titles, like, the title of this thing is Once More With Feeling. Like, it is a musical about depression which is like yeah. an amazing thing to think about like yeah. the whole statement of this is like wouldn't it be nice to feel as happy as a musical is supposed to make you feel right yeah. and it's just like next to normal is shaking right now uh, <laughs> well the overall triumph of this episode as a whole and i'll probably mention it again when we talk about like you know grades or the episode or whatever but it's just like how ambitious to turn your musical episode to not do this as a one-off to have it be like as crucial as this episode is plot wise mm-hmm. is insane because it's just yeah. like, oh, never done a musical before. It could be a total disaster. Maybe we would want to just sort of like insulate it from the rest of the show. So in case we just want to be like, oh, it was a dream. It never happened. Like, no, it's the most plot crucial episode right. of the season so far. It's not. Which Sarah Michelle Geller has talked about how she yeah. briefly considered letting herself be dubbed for right. the singing. Yeah. And then right. she realized, yeah. oh, this is like, the actual turning point of the whole season. I have to sing this horrible flat heaven (laughs) note, right? Like, yeah, like that, that is the important beat. So she's like, well, I I have to do it. And she does a great job. I do. I I like listening to her. It's so charming that they can't really sing, right? Like, yes, it's sort of not, not to to invoke (laughs) Woody Allen, but the movie, everyone says, the movie, everyone says, says, I love you, you know, is Woody Allen's musical. Um, And despite the fact that he's canceled, it is a movie that I enjoyed a lot as a child. And part of that is that like, they can't really sing. And there were some people in the cast who could sing, 
like Goldie Hawn and he made her sing worse. Yeah. Because he wanted it to sound like real people in a musical, sort of in that context, but they're still real people who don't necessarily have mm-hmm. like Broadway caliber voices. It gives me that Jacques Demy kind of thing where it's like no one in this, like Jacques Demy's musicals, no one can really sing in them. And it's sort of like there is kind of like a, a like a realism to it, but also like that's the spell, right? Like your right. skill set is your skill set. <laughs> like you're going to have to sing. Right. You're arguing your way out of that ticket no matter what. And you sound like. You sound <laughs> yeah, like. exactly. Yeah. Uh, two things. Um, one, I wanted to say, Anthony has repeatedly, three times now, made references to musicals I've never heard of. <gasps> you have to watch Jacques Demy. He's like this amazing queer French um, 60s. I said it, I was like, what word in Latin is that? But no, it's a person. <laughs> <laughs> I run to read David Fury's quote from the book specifically about actually Sarah Michelle Geller. He said how Sarah, as an easy as she was initially, rose the occasion beautifully. She loved dan- She loved dancing. She loved learning the choreography. And she thought she couldn't sing, but I think ultimately what she was able to do was great. And I kind of agree with that quote because I actually do what you guys were talking about. I think that Buffy's performance here, which of course is the most important one, really nails the like, I'm not a singer, but I'm somehow stuck in the musical. But like, I can sing, but I'm not, you know, she's not like Mariah Carey belting, but like she can, she does the job, but also you get the impression that like she isn't a singer. I don't know. So for me, that's what really works about Buffy in general in this episode. I would have loved maybe one or two more. I get that we, this episode does a good job of giving everyone a lot of time. Like everyone gets their own song. Minus Dawn. And Willow. requested a dance number I read because she had dance, she had dance training and didn't want to sing, which like, fair girl, that's good. Yeah, that's that's all of us except for Kirsten in this episode. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we all requested a dance number. You can't (laughs) see it, but it's I'm doing mine right now. Yeah, so I would have loved almost more like, because right, that aside from that opening scene, there's not a lot of like typical Buffy things they do aside from like being in the magic box, which I do love. But I would have almost loved if there was more of them like uh, singing the research or singing like while she's slaying. But so then Buffy goes to the magic box and I really love her. Uh, so did anybody, uh, last night, you know, <laughs> did anybody um, burst into song? <laughs> The reaction to that is very funny because you, I, I did not see that coming. I remember, yeah. And I love when Giles said there was a huge backing orchestra. I couldn't see like this this episode, and I don't know why it always surprises me, but every time I rewatch, it surprises me just how funny Buffy is. It is so consistently just. There are so many things that if you aren't paying attention, you miss, and the writing is just phenomenal. And this episode is no exception. It's hilarious. Sort of the overlapping dialogue, and then Dawn shows up. And says the thing about like all crestfallen that like she doesn't get to have the big announcement, and then she's just like like gave birth to a pterodactyl, and then Anya's line of "Oh my God, did it sing?" is the best line reading ever on the show. Yeah. Perfect. Which gets cut in the broadcast version no. of, of this episode. Yeah, it's brutal. Can't. This episode actually gets recut very violently. Like it yeah. loses the, yeah. the the whole what can't we face number gets cut if you're watching it on broadcast. I don't know if Netflix has the longer one or not. Hulu has the full version. Oh, And you also lose Dawn's yeah. dance in its entirely, entirety. And you also lose, to me, the Aww. biggest cut is Dawn saying the hardest thing in this world is to live in it. Like that. They cut that? They cut that. Like, mm-hmm. how much time are you saving cutting right. the most thematically important I think, piece yeah, of the I think episode? someone just really hated Dawn, which, like, <laughs> you know, not, not entirely an unpopular opinion. Yeah. I love the little glimpses here, too, that you get into the outside world when they open the door and there's that they got the mustard out yeah. number. Like, 
I would like to follow him for the David rest of the Fury, episode. right? Like, what other adventures? Yeah. yeah, what other adventures was he having? Um, but they did. They just set everything up so well. Um, and Anya's little "It Must Be Bunnies," yeah. which is so um, iconic. Um, I feel like she sells it harder than anybody else. Like Anya, and which makes sense because Anya, Anya, her personality type is I will go along with whatever is happening around me because I want to be yeah. a part of it. And so she like embraces oh, this. We do remember get the, the flash back to this episode in the Anya episode. Yes. yes. And that flashback also yes. includes a callback to the mustard guy. Cause yes. he is the person she yeah. overhears outside getting Speaking mustard. About how he got mustard <laughs> and the uh, parking ticket lady. Because yes. They are a couple. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. How could you serve mustard? <laughs> <laughs> The choreography on the, that he, they got the mustard out uh, number, which is just like very both elaborate and simple at the same time, where it's just almost just like they're doing like semaphore flags in the background, where they're just like <laughs> very just like arms yeah. sticking out in all directions. It's shout out to Adam Shankman okay. who choreographed it. Yeah, um, in the commentary for this, Joss also says that Anya's bunnies moment was actually because, like he said, he tried to keep it all very 50s, 40s stylized. But her moment was like very metalish to him because that's Emma Caulfield herself would sing like that as a joke on set. <laughs> Emma Caulfield, mm. secret lead singer of The Who. You don't few people really like <laughs> that, but well, I kind of I like that it's like such a mix of styles. I don't know. I I, I get that most of the songs kind of fit into the same mode, but obviously, and not to jump ahead, but you know, we get songs later in the episode that are a little bit yeah. outside of the genre of classical musical theater, and I I think it's like you know a lot of shows like like Crazy Ex Girlfriend you know, is a show that did a lot of different musical kind of yes. styles in each episode, yes. um, specific references to, you know, songs or bands or whatever. And um, I like that we get a, a blend here and yeah. it kind of all feels organic. And Anya's resentment about her song not being in the style that she wants. Like she's more of a retro pastiche. <laughs> yeah. That's such a good line. God. Yeah. She wants the Andrew Lloyd Webber song that lifts out kind right. of thing. She wants the ABBA, uh, whatever. <laughs> one night, she wants one night in Bangkok, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> no more Mamma Mia speech. That was a guess reference, but. That song is oh, also canceled. It's full of. Lewis, your, indi- your indignance there was very precious to me. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> Came from a real place. Okay, next was Willow and Tara's song. They sneak off saying that they're going to go do research. Right. I think this moment feels very unbuffy, but I love it. Like, I. And I don't even know that I actually particularly love this song, but I, oh, I feel like I love it because it works so well. Yeah. Like, I feel like the scene itself works, right? Because the heavy handed part is, oh, Tara's singing, she's under your spell. It's about their codependent relationship, but also about the fact that Willow literally put a spell on her. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, like, even right now, it's like kind of like cool to be like, oh, this lesbian couple singing about being in love with each other. Well, and it's so pretty. It's bright and sunny yeah. and they're wearing these beautiful dresses and they're both so beautiful and yeah but there is that very sort of like dark undercurrent because we know but i think that what's i like the the fact that they're kind of that they're horny for each other in a way that we rarely saw on the show but like they they Mm -hmm. they sneak off to like do it and it's and it's something that like we rarely see the desire between them you know it's Mm -hmm. often like as part of a spell they have like a sexy moment but for them to like them to really just be like i don't want to be researching because i want to be with you in some intimate way is yeah. kind of unusual for the show and and exciting. Yes, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. yeah, I also like that Allison Hannigan was like, "I'm not singing <laughs> at, all. at all." And there's a way no. that her absence, the absence of her voice, sort of 
turns us against her in this episode in a really interesting way. Like, because we don't hear from her very much as a character, we're sort of so much focalized through Tara's eyes that the betrayal becomes Mm -hmm. so much worse, right? Like, there's no moment where Willow kind of justifies this violation. Right. Um, and even this song, like, I, I I, do love it. I think it's very pretty. But beyond its sort of ironic, dark undercurrents, it is deeply creepy for someone to be like, I'm a person because you love me. You know, like, it, yeah. it's it's troubling even if it wasn't for the spell. And it's, I'm, kudos to the show. Like, I was watching um, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Sabrina puts spells on Harvey, like, every week. And it's nice for yeah. this, this show to be like, no, that's yeah. actually horrible. And, Autonomy like, matters. Yeah. <laughs> And like the real terror that Tara has where she realizes like, maybe this has happened before. How do I even escape from this? Like when she pulls the emergency lever is like, I got to go because yeah. I have to get out of this. Like that's real and like so neat to see them playing. It's so heartbreaking. Well, and it's set up with this number because like this is where like she's putting her heart out there and on her sleeve and... It does. It sounds very sweet. It's also just like the fact that they are dressed up in that like ridiculous Renfair garb also mm-hmm. gives it the air of this like, oh, it's a Disney princess number where it's just like two princesses in love. And, like mm-hmm. that's very yeah. cool. There's also something like very classical musical theater though about like a love song that's kind of creepy. There, I mean, yeah. there's so many love songs that are just like the whole idea of like, you know, I, I exist in relation to you. I am beautiful because you love me. Um, it's just all really like, a bad message and i think that you know here we're getting a song that's conscious of that yeah um played as very romantic but like you know in the context of the episode and what we know about them and and what they've been going through um we get how disturbing it is yeah. right and designed when it when the reprise hit is designed to sort of detonate right like oh this is horrible like <laughs> yeah. yeah lewis i don't know if you remember when we recorded with amber last year how she said that the dress from this episode was like haunting her trailer because they did so many reshoots <laughs> And like, it was just like she would see it in her trailer and be like, "Oh, I guess we're doing that episode again." <laughs> I mean, I as I as I as I we were saying earlier um, when we were rudely jumping ahead, um, it's a lovely dress. I don't think it works logistically for the way they use it. Uh, you know, skirts skirts go up a lot. Yeah. So it would yeah, be fine. Right. I feel like I feel like. You know, it's, I don't. It's like a flowy skirt. It's not like a pencil skirt. <laughs> the logistics of this would have been much easier than the logistics of Buffy in the full-length oh, leather skirt yes, that comes later. In. My thing with the framing of the part where Willow goes down out of frame is if they're doing what they're doing, there would be some gathering of the skirt up at the waist or something. <laughs> yes, the skirt. It's doesn't so matter. placid and unbothered. Like you see, like I don't know the. Like you, you see too much of Tara for it to be happening the way it's. I don't know. There's an essay to be written about like the semiotics of like lesbian floating because I feel like the craft also did this <laughs> yeah. like this like sex equals floaty times thing. If I'm remembering correctly, like yeah. in the '90s, if you kids are young, in the '90s when lesbians had sex, they floated. Right. And, Light as a feather, stiff as a board. Yes, it's weird that like Buffy used magic as a stand-in for lesbian sex repeatedly, but Mm -hmm. magic is also drugs. It's a lot of metaphors going on. (laughs) Yeah, Mm. never just magic. It's either lesbian sex or drugs. (laughs) Magic wasn't drugs for a few more episodes yet, Lewis. So don't worry. That's fine. You're right. You're right. You're right. I mean, for me, that's one of the reasons why the metaphor isn't my favorite because it's like, is it drugs or lesbian sex? Which pick one? Yeah, but. That's a conversation for another episode. Um, yeah, so I feel... So in the commentary, Joss says, 
he knew Tara, and he actually says this quote unquote, he says Tara would have the breakaway pop hit of the musical. And then he's like talking about that. And then they get to the scene when Tara's singing under your spell or whatever, when she's floating and he goes, and this scene is porn. Mm. And that's like, (laughs) you make me come pleat. Yeah. Yeah. We got it. Yeah. (laughs) It's subtle. So, you know, (laughs) what's funny is I don't, Joe, was it you that said you didn't get, I don't know. I I definitely got it. Yeah. I did not get okay. it. Okay, I don't think the first watch I got this. Like, I really don't think I did. Like, I knew that, like, they were couples. So, yeah, they were just like, I, I don't know that I thought there was a thing going on. I thought it was just like, Tara's so happy she's floating. <laughs> <laughs> no, but even, like, the words that she's using in the song, like. Yeah, I can feel you inside. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And she says, talks about, like, spreading and, like, there's a lot. Right beneath my willow tree. Yeah. Like- I love that for you, Ian. Willow just like went to the bathroom. <laughs> what did you what did you think was happening? Like she just like, well, you have your floaty nap. I'm gonna go make like well, an egg. Like, I'm not gonna be singing. I don't really need to be here. So yeah. <laughs> You're busy singing. I'll go get a snack. Well, I mean Oh God. Oh no. Anyway, all right. I actually really love the cut to Xander and Buffy. I love yes. that. Tara yes. is still singing, but cut away. <laughs> well, it's just like sexy, sexy, uh, sexy, and then it's just like Xander. Which is a thing that happens a lot with him, right? Like he becomes, yeah. he controls the way the audience watches Willow and Tara. Like that's sort of a callback to the moment in Hush where we watch him. Ima- like uh, Lewis was just talking about how they never get sexualized. They were very sexualized under Xander's like yeah. creepy dream gaze, right? Where they were like these oh, lipstick lesbians. Too, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. and like that same it's like him imagining them having sex like aggressively and like repeatedly as everyone in the room is like please stop like we know <laughs> that's what they're doing we don't need you to explain that's what they're doing and he keeps going there there's like yeah. this strange actually he's a weird thing in this episode right like not just the ending but like the thing with the donut like he's kind yeah, of yeah the magnolia we, we sort of breezed past <laughs> that but I made a note made a note of that he's making oh, yeah. it's such like a I mean, even in 2001, that joke is already kind of two years out of date. But the mm-hmm. um, and even in 2001, that was like such a specific like if that movie wasn't right. It wasn't like a blockbuster. No, it was like it would be like critical fave. I mean, like it it you know it was Tom Cruise or whatever. But the line in the movie is yeah. "retect re, uh, respect the cock and tame the cunt," and it's just like that shouldn't be a thing that Xander's making donut jokes about. Like, what's yeah. going on here in a room full of women? I, like, yeah, I just liked Anya's tone where she was just like, "It's still very funny." <laughs> there's, there's a weird, there's a weird like homophobic element of like the horror that everyone seems to feel about about Don knowing about Willow and Tara having sex. Yeah. That really um, which mm-hmm. again pays off when he's like, "Do I have to be your queen at the end?" Right? Like there is a there right. is a queer fear strain happening throughout the. Episode. So wait, so talking about what Lewis just said, I actually read that that scene differently almost every time I watch this episode because I read it as the homophobic like aspect, or I read it as Buffy's single and miserable and Xander is in a relationship, but doesn't want to get married, but is going to get married. So they're both like, love isn't cute. So I can read it. And I do read it like literally different all the time. It's either. Yes. It's like, Oh, gross. Two girls. Or like, no, love is gross. We hate love. Cause we're both. And miserable. I sort of sometimes will charitably read it as just like, you're too young to be having sex. So like, I think there's yeah. a blurry line that right. but like, and again, the optics of, 
Michelle Trachtenberg being six foot ten at this moment. Yes. Also, like, right. <laughs> like, like she's fifteen, which she doesn't look right. So, I mean, I don't know how yeah. old Michelle Trachtenberg was, but like the Dawn character is still being written younger on the page right. than the optics are giving us. I mean, they're not giving her like pigtails anymore, right. but yeah, like. <laughs> Yeah, she's still like even Michelle Trachtenberg. Yeah, she just looks older, and she's not that much older than she's playing. I don't think at that point. No, I think she was like she was still a teenager, but she just looks like she could be like in her twenties. Yeah, so that always like reading the like scenes with Dawn make it a little. Wah. But I do think it is like a it is like a you don't talk about. I mean, we had this joke before with Joyce, right? Where Joyce, where in Dawn's diary, she's like, "I wish they would teach me a spell. I wish they would teach me what they're doing together." And Joyce got quiet, right? Like, there's yeah. a specific <laughs> thing where like their lesbianism is not to be discussed. <laughs> Which I guess, to be fair, would be very of the time, right? Well, Kirsten couldn't watch these episodes, so. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I don't think I don't think that like the I don't think that it's like a deep homophobia, but I do think there's a little bit of discomfort. And Buffy herself has never like never seemed like super thrilled about like you know delving into the specifics of Willow and Tara's sex life. Not that you necessarily like have to, but there's always a little bit of discomfort there. Mm-hmm. As we all saw in the crossover episode in season four, Faith was much better at confronting those things. That's true. And I, I do feel like Buffy's always, her character has always been a little bit of a prude when it comes to sex, but that mostly comes from the fact that her first sexual experience was like the worst. And then he murdered a bunch of people. So like, I give her room. I'm like, okay, she's a prude, but she had this really terrible fucking thing happen. So, but I'm also more fair with my Buffy characters because I love them all so much. They're all perfect. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of no flaws, Anya's outfit in her scene where she had to be in a bra top. (laughs) I'm like, you know how carefully she had to move the whole time to make sure that her stomach stayed flat? Because if you bend over at all, you're going to, it's going to, even somebody as skinny as her, it's going to look like she has like a role, which she does not. But like, oh, that's a painful scene to watch as a woman, like just knowing how carefully she would have had to choreograph herself to look that good the whole time. Meanwhile, Xander's in like big floppy pajamas or whatever. Right? I want those pajamas though. They look so comfortable. I know they did. But you're right. She, her, like her midsection is like, Jesus Christ. (laughs) I kind of wonder, I mean, is this sort of the thing where like, I know that they, obviously the, the costumes were designed to kind of fit in with this, very stylized musical, but I like. I wonder if they wore those pajamas every night because that is a lot. If if Xander wore those pajamas <laughs> that, like on a regular basis, or if it's just kind of the, the the fantasy of the episode. Yeah. Well, so in the commentary, Joss actually comments about their looks, and he said in season five, Anya Anya's look felt very forties anyway, and Xander's apartment had a very thirties Art Deco ness to it. So he says. And he says, because Annie and Xander were always played for comedic relief, he knew their number had to be one like this, where it's silly and fun and more like lighthearted. Even though in the context of knowing he leaves her at the altar, this yeah. is kind of like one of the bigger, like, this is this is like the biggest red flag. Oh, it's all foreboding. Like, even at the time before knowing that he was going to leave her at the altar, like you watch that and you're just like, oh, like, <laughs> where is this going? What are you telling us? Mm-hmm. Well, Kirsten and I always say, we're in agreement on this, I think, here. So no, like the him leaving her at the altar wasn't earned. And I really no. buy that. Um, yeah. I feel like we do get little hints of his insecurity over it. And this is like mm-hmm. one where you get the biggest hint of it. And then I don't think we really get another big one until he actually leaves her. To, to Lewis's point about the pajamas, like I do think the episode sort of says that the spell is that they're singing, but I think it's actually 
a bit more metaphysical than that. Like, I feel like it's actually yeah. that their world has been altered to allow for musical numbers. Like, the, even the newspaper Xander pulls up is ridiculous, right? Like, Monsters Attack. Like, mm-hmm. there's sort of, like, an elevatedness to everything. There's that moment in the the Giles number where Buffy sort of fades out of time and it seems to actually have happened because she didn't hear his song, right? Like, yeah. right. there's a weird way that the mechanics of reality are being fudged with, too. So, like, yeah. maybe just tonight they went to bed in these pajamas, right? Yeah, well, I mean, she's wearing fuzzy high-heeled slippers. Like, those right. those are not normal. Yeah, yeah that, I kind of got that sense that, like, it's part of the magic of this mm-hmm. demonic It goes back to that alarm clock in that first shot that I loved so much. Right. It's yeah. like, I, that's pro- I, I don't think that's the alarm clock that Buffy has, <laughs> like, 365 a year. But I think it's just, like, now that the world has become this sort of, like, you know, stranger than strange musical land like that's everything is heightened i kind of like the idea that she's staring at it because she's like what the fuck is this clock (laughs) (laughs) where did it come from um what ian ian what you were saying about sort of the you know the 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 eventual leaving her the altar feeling unearned the song is interesting because i don't think that they what they're talking about is mostly kind of petty squabbling like you don't entirely Mm -hmm. get it like the root of their insecurities um in in a lot for a lot of the song at least for me it feels a little bit more like a silly bantery, like here, yeah. here are our disagreements. It's not, it's not so much about like, like Xander ends up having serious commitment issues and fears of becoming like an alcoholic monster that is yeah. not quite outlined in the song. Not that we need to hear it all explicitly laid out right now, but it's, you know, it's a little bit more generic, like getting married is scary. What I was trying to say is like, it. this is the biggest red flag, but it's still not big enough red flag to earn us. Yeah. with him leaving him leaving was always going to be a betrayal and it probably should have always been but you know that's sort of yeah. getting ahead mm-hmm. by several episodes i mean on the flip side like he does say that's why i'll never tell her that i'm petrified she is sort of yeah. expressing her her fear of mortality right like it starts mm-hmm. with their like minor grievances but it does seem like yeah it builds it kind of okay. actually puts them all on the same level which is why it doesn't read right like if if you put like his like of weird cheeses or whatever next to his terror, he will end up being his father. Like it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't pop off the page, right? right. But it, they know yeah. they've said something they weren't supposed to say because they freak out in the next. Like the cut after this is them giggling to the sort of now they feel like they need to fix it, which doesn't really track with the fact that Xander knows exactly why this is happening. I don't really. Well, that we we'll, we'll get to that, but it doesn't make yeah. any sense, and we should revisit that. <laughs> I just want to call out for Joss Whedon sort of being this first time songwriter that he essentially like taught himself songwriting through writing this episode. The line, um, I talk, he breezes. She doesn't know what pleases his penis got diseases from a Shumash tribe is fucking astounding. Tight internal rhyme. I love it so much. I think they're, and I think uh, their dance is also really fucking great. He is a yeah. dazzling lyricist. I do think that, like, have you guys listened to Commentary, the musical? No. Okay, no. so if you get the Dr. Horrible sing-along blog DVD, you can listen to a full-length commentary musical starring the in cast song. in character singing about the songs they're singing about. And it has one of my <laughs> favorite lines I think I've ever heard, which is someone talking about how there's internal rhyme, but not in every instance, which is the refusal to rhyme time and rhyme. <laughs> I love it so, so much. It's so good. You should listen to it. It's fun. I think for somebody like me who Dr. Horrible sort of rides the line between like the Joss I like and like 
sprinkling sugar on a bowl of frosted flakes. You know what I mean? Where it's mm. just sort of just like, <laughs> it's so much Joss that sometimes I'm just like, all right, this is the limit. I'm not sure I could do the musical commentary, but I <laughs> might have to say. The meta of the commentary musical? Yeah, maybe. It is actually a <laughs> musical know. about uh, sort of a phenomenon. Weakness. No one listens to commentaries anymore. It's about the sort of ubiquity of commentary tracks and how they ruin everything. Um, like that's the theme <laughs> of this musical. <laughs> yeah, and that probably was near the end of when commentary tracks sort of like were becoming, were, you know, on the way out. Mm-hmm. Do you guys remember DVDs? Oh my God, <laughs> fondly. I'm, I jealously hoard them because at some point this is all going to crash and physical media is going to matter again. So <laughs> The only time I watch DVDs is to record these episodes because the yeah. Buffy, Buffy is not on uh, Netflix in Canada anymore. So I have to. Oh, you don't get Hulu. That's awful. Yeah, yeah. It's the only drawback to being in Canada. <laughs> Your Netflix gets Drag Race. You guys win. I'm sorry. Mm. This kind of this whole song and, and moment ties into like the weirdness of season six and their ages and where they are in life, where they suddenly seem a lot older than they were supposed to be on the show. Yeah, right. that's true. And I think like like the whole like them as a sort of like you know bickering couple who's finally getting married is so weird when you think about the fact that they're supposed to be what like in their very early in college. Our Anya Anya is obviously you know, a lot older than that, but like strange about all of this and like worrying about getting old and all this stuff when the, they're, they're in their, yeah, they're what, like 20, 22, maybe. Yeah. yeah. I think they're mm-hmm. 20. I think they're like 20 or 21. Yeah. No, it doesn't really. And that was always a struggle with the show as they got out of high school. Um, and then again, you know, when they kind of forgot that college was a thing, um, right. they suddenly became like full adults in a way that, um, can be a little jarring when you think about the context of, of, you know, where they were a couple years ago. Yeah. Well, I feel like Joss has even like talked about that before or like Marty Knox and her baby, both of them about how they sort of were like anxious to get them out of school. They didn't really college yeah. couldn't just be a high school do over because they were tired of that. So they kind of hustled them into adulthood. And it's just like as viewers, especially like in our time, we're just sort of like, where's their like arrested adolescence twenties. Like, yeah. hold on a second. Like, they're like homeowners yeah. and, and you know, career people and getting married at 20. I talked about this with the uh, Halloween episode last time, but like the part where this really bothers me is Giles being like, I got to get out of the way. And it's like, she's 20 and just died. Like maybe you could just <laughs> stick around. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like his whole standing in the way thing. I don't, it doesn't track if you think for a second about how immature right. she actually has to be in this moment. It's like suddenly it's five years later. And everyone, and I don't know if that's actually a, maybe that's a flaw of the way we tell stories about young people, really. Like, it's sort of like, we're just sort of inventing this, like, category of the 20s in the last, like, 10, 15 years. Yeah. I I do kind of wonder, though, if, like, the show we're on now, I mean, a lot would be different, obviously, but, like, time jumps are so much more popular now as a way to kind of get out of the... Like now when we, we have characters leave high school and they kind of just jump ahead five years because the actors are always invariably in their late 20s anyway. Um, yeah. It would it just would be so much more, it would feel so much more honest if we just had a, a time jump between like, you know, five and six. Yep. Although, although I will say like the whole, the whole concept of the 20s now, um, I, I feel like it's fairly recent. I mean, anthropologically mm-hmm. speaking, um, just like the concept of childhood and teenagerhood are, you know, they were, they were a result of, of progress and of, you know, not having child labor anymore. Um, because the community that I grew up in was very, very normal to get married incredibly young. Like I got married two weeks after I turned 19 and that was not weird. Um, and so, so for me, I'm like, yeah, yeah, this all tracks. Well, I mean, the thing is this show is contemporary with friends, right? Like, 
to me, if I were, yeah. if you're gonna write a book about this, it would be called "So No One Told You Life Was Gonna Be This Way," and it's just about <laughs> like how we have to like invent this like suspended. Yeah arrested development and the culture was really trying to deal with how to even articulate that space for a long time which friends sort of performs right like that's why friends is such a homophobic show because it's like Chandler and um Joey live together and the show is freaked out about the the like prolonged period where men still have to be roommates right right I was home I was home for my dad's uh 70th birthday a couple weeks ago and I found myself doing that sort of like chit chat with family where you sort of update them on your life and invariably with me it's just like well this is my new apartment that I'm living in and this is my new job that I have and (laughs) I mentioned just sort of just like yep my you know still same roommate as the last couple apartments and I'm like holy shit I'm how old I am and talking about my like platonic roommate or whatever. And I'm just like, what in the world must this sound like to these people who all got married at 21 or whatever? <laughs> you know what I mean? Have you, have you thought about maybe singing about it? Cause that might. <laughs> no, cause then the real truths come out and nobody needs that. Okay. I'm going to move us along. So we're moving past on, um, Anya and Xander. And the next note I have is this great, great line from Giles and it's just delivered so offhand and he says yeah. at least we're taking witness arias <laughs> I love the transition of them laughing at the end of their song to them loudly complaining to Giles about the yeah. one they just sang yeah this makes no sense right can we just acknowledge this moment makes no sense this whole scene what do you mean with Xander acting like he doesn't know what's going on yeah oh, I mean right. the button if oh, yeah, you yeah. if you yeah. lean on the button of Xander is the solution like it's like that Simpsons episode where it's like they were all saved by let's say yeah. Like you have to you have to have to blow past the Xander thing because if you don't he's responsible for several deaths right? right like that's that's the problem we learn in this scene so many deaths, and they never acknowledge Typical it Xander. but just like but, but beyond that like he he obviously knows that things are not going the way he had planned and never once is like let me explain what I did right. so we can undo this. He's just like, you have to figure out what's going on, Giles, because this is bad. Or even just like, let me accidentally guide you in the right direction. Like, no. Yeah. If it had been Dawn, it's sort of like narratively supported, right? Where like she has that moment early on where she's just like, come on, you guys, it's kind of sweet. It's sort of fun that everybody's like singing and dancing or whatever. And so like, and you even when mm-hmm. she talks to Sweet later when she gets abducted and she's just like, but like fun times, right? Like it'll all be good. And the episode then has to get her out of this, you know, demonic uh, betrothment or whatever. And <laughs> the, the Xander thing just sort of feels like a comedic beat, but like it would make a lot more sense if it was Dawn. Cause yeah. of course it's, I think it's meant to be a mislead, yeah. right? Like, yeah. I think we're supposed to think it was yeah. her. Like, I mean, I've watched this thing maybe like once a week for 20 years, yeah. but like, I think in the initial, you're actually supposed to be like, oh, Dawn caused But this. it's not like there's a mystery about who caused it until like the last 10 minutes of the episode anyway. Right. right. None of us really yeah. care. It could have been like, there's, you could have just had like a demon right. showing up randomly as demons tend to do when there's a hell mouth and it would have been fine. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're right. I think uh, this show was kind of, I feel like this show to me is still like, I mean, they'll have a podcast about it. It's like top tier, but I think it even fell fell victim to things that were very tropey and would be done on TV shows back then. And I, think- I actually like how much it steps on its own tropes, especially in this episode, right? Like Dawn starts to sing this like lovely ballad and then shit gets cut off. Yeah. Or then the, the puppet, right. like the music swells to let the puppet sing his song and he just talks over it, right? Like it sort of 
it knows the tropes so well that it's playing so fast and loose with them. Like um, you guys were complaining about the, the meta-ness of, I mean, the show has become so meta. It is entirely up its own ass at this point, right? Like it's a musical about the tropes of musicals where everyone keeps complaining that their songs aren't the kinds of songs they want to sing in a musical, right? right? Like, I have, I have in my notes, they say bless those demons forever for stopping <laughs> Don's whiny song. Kristen. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I am so hard on Dawn, and I write for teens about teens. But honestly, her dance is lovely, right? I um, I did like a live show of this episode at 54 Below, the cabaret venue where Luann DeLesseps, uh began her cabaret career for Real Housewives of New York viewers. <laughs> I love that. That's your setup. For oh it. yeah, I mean that's the most important reference point of this like very well known cabaret venue in New York. Um, but yeah, we we did a we did a live uh, performance of this of this episode, um, and I was the narrator, so I was like. I was the one who was kind of just guiding the episode along. We did some scenes and, you know, all, all the songs, obviously. And I just pointed out that, like, Dawn's song is just, you know, an articulation of what she's been saying for the past, like, you know, 25 episodes. So we don't really <laughs> need to reiterate that she feels left out. Right. After, yeah. there, does anybody even notice? Does anyone even care? There's nothing else in that song. Right, right? yeah. Right. There's no place we to go. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, I forgot I had a quote from this book that James Marster says about so about the Anya and Xander thing. So we knew we would fail, but we decided to try our best anyway. I was never more proud of us as a company. And then, of course, Joss edited the first scene that we shot and showed it to us, wheeled it out, wheeled out a TV onto the soundstage. We crowded around it, and it was brilliant. It was a Xander and Anya dance scene, and it was fabulous. We suddenly realized this thing could actually work, which I thought was like really cool that that was the first scene they shot and also yeah. that he like showed it to them all mm-hmm. but yes continuing along with uh so is, is the next scene after them in the alley oh well for the alley for that scene when they're walking along the street um the two choreographers are a couple that's dancing aside from marty knox and singing um and then the guys that are the puppet head guys are three guys with uh, with brooms dancing in the street um, and in the commentary, Joss says it took 21 takes to get everything to happen all uh-huh. perfectly at the right time because oh, it's wow. one long shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought that was like pretty impressive. Yeah. And also how annoyed they all must have been having to yeah. redo that scene it so many cute, times. It is cute, like the way it shows like the escalating horribleness of being trapped in this world, right? Like the jangling of like all these musicals happening on top of each other is sort of amazing and like neat. I like that. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's just like so many things going on. I don't know. I, the... The Marty Knoxon scene is so good. Just, I mean, I remember when it first aired and like loving that. Like uh, that was like a you know throwaway thing that I noticed specifically the first time watching it and being like, oh, I like that. He's even he's making it so like that's. I mean, that's the way it would be, right? It would be there's twenty hundred musicals going on at once because everyone's singing. Yeah, and I also think that Emma Caulfield and uh, Nicholas Brendan are really shining in that scene where they're just like arguing on top of each other while everyone's having fun dancing. His oversized coat really bothers me. It's like, <laughs> if you've never noticed, it'll all be, it'd be all you notice from now on is that his sleeve goes all the way past his arm and it drives me nuts. Did we miss Spike's number? Did we blow past it? I think that's where we are, actually. We, is that, that's oh, okay, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Skip. <laughs> I love Buffy saying, what else would I want to pump you for? And then cringing. Yeah, calling out her own bad line. That was fun. I, I really love when the show does that because it is a bad line, but it makes it okay. And yet she- they did a three episode arc that was essentially like the filming of that one terrible line, which is just like, okay. <laughs> this song, so for this song, 
James Marsters sang it and did the guitar. Oh, I didn't know that. It feels very straight guy rock to me. Uh huh. <laughs> I remember at the time that this episode came out, and it was either Joss or other people to do with the episode, being very much just like you got to hear the Spike number. It could be a hit today on the radio. It's just like it's you know he's got real talent. He doesn't just look like Billy Idol. He could be Billy Idol. Blah blah blah. And it's just like he's fine. <laughs> like it's the one aspect of this episode that doesn't feel like actors who are not musical theater actors doing their best to sell these songs. This feels like this guy's got a band and he wants to show you what a great, cool band he's got. And <laughs> are there reference for this? Like, are there like musicals that sound like this? I I can't. Yeah. I mean, there, well, there are, there are like rock musicals. Yeah. There's yeah. Like Tommy, I, I, I guess or something. Oh, like Tommy. That. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was like, this isn't exact. This is not like a Jesus Christ superstar. Like I, no. I didn't know what. No. Yeah. Okay. I don't think it's. I don't think this is like a. This is like a, a deliberate reference to any one one show. There's but there's plenty of musicals that have kind of fallen into more of a, a rock vibe. But also like I don't feel like this whole thing is played like a musical at all. Really, it's more of like a, it's sort of a music video, I guess. But it's not really yeah. like it doesn't fit in the context of like this musical fantasy they're doing for the other oh, songs. Oh, that's true. The nighttime funeral feels very Billy Idol actually, now that I think about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I, I also, I don't know. It's like one of those things that when I, when I was watching this, when I was younger, like after coming out was like, Oh, this is so like fun and yeah. sexy. And like, I think I kind of forced myself to think that because watching it now, I'm like, it's not really very fun or There's sexy. There's a lot about Spike that felt fun and sexy then that doesn't now. And yeah. <laughs> even just like where it turned after season six, where it was just like, where I like, I at, at that point, as you know, a person watching it in real time, made my like abrupt about face with Spike and was just like, nope, no more. And because he was such a beloved character in the fandom and... I guess yeah. remains mm-hmm. so in with most of the fans. I, I will yeah. say that uh, that this song, despite being, I think to all of us, like maybe the weakest song in the episode. Um, and if anyone wants to contest that, that's fine. But um, I do love the bridge. What's a bridge? <laughs> <laughs> the bridge when he when he when he sings like, but I follow you like a man oh, okay. possessed. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, that, that whole part. That sounds to me like a moment where he's William the Bloody again because it does. It's again very tight, quick rhyme. All of a sudden, interesting rhyme. Uh, breast possessed like those are neat little beats if only he could work the word effulgent into it we really could have had a oh what a mistake not to have that rhyme recur in this song that would have been so good you should tell joss (laughs) (laughs) i mean i agree that i don't know if it's weakest because i'm not a musical theater guy but it is i've never had much of a soft spot for this element of vampire myth like the ooh, he's creepy and dangerous and he might not respect my boundaries like that to me has never been an appealing storyline and i think that to buffy as a show's credit it did end up being as much as the spike storyline can be unpleasant it does kind of critique something that even still lingers like even twilight was still playing this game after buffy yeah oh Um, yeah so much of buffy is designed to critique it and this is the moment where it's like, I feel uncomfortable. And it's like, but maybe the show wants me to feel uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. With Spike, they really do kind of like make it clear that there are boundary issues here, like over and over again. Whereas like, if you look at like Buffy and Angel, not to like reignite the, these ship shipping wars, because mm. um, that's dangerous can of worms to open. But like Buffy and Angel had much of the same creepiness and possessiveness and like stalking behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least with Buffy and Spike, like, she is super creeped out by him the whole time. 
it's never like it, and this song is really indicative of their relationship where like it's never played as a as a true romance like there is something deeply fucked up about, yeah. about all of it and and his his like mixture of hatred and love is like maybe it was sexy when I was 16 and watched it, but I still understood it to be disturbing on some level. And that goes back to the, the Willow Tara song actually, right? Like a, a theme that yeah. is emerging is that love is creepy, right? Like there is something about um, <laughs> the, the destructiveness of it, the possessiveness of it um, that is being articulated, like in its defense, as much as I'm like, I can't find a way to super love the Buffy Spike arc. Yeah. Maybe I'm not supposed to. I don't know. I did want to say, so in the commentary, Joss actually says that he doesn't love the way he ended up doing the funeral scene. He says that he wishes he did that better, um, which is funny. And then he, but he also says that he very much, which I like when he talks about like frames of screen, like the framing of a scene, because I like, I love the show, but I don't think of that very often. And he says very much intentionally, mm-hmm. the song is about her leaving Spike alone. Spike is consistently getting closer and closer to her and he's never out of frame when she's shown on screen in this during this number oh yeah there is something really invasive about it yeah just like even visually and that was on purpose and i think what you guys were talking about i agree with they i think they knew even back then mostly not not as much as they would have known now but i think they knew that it was not like i don't think they saw it as like a healthy ship but i do think there's something to be said for the fact that angel is still romanticized because oh boy do those ship wars ignite in slayer fest mentions sometimes oh i'm sure oh really still the kids are still renegotiating oh, i don't even know if it's the kids hon. i think it's we're not kids anymore <laughs> we're, we're, we're all in our 30s but yes yeah um cuz like when we had james marsters on someone tweeted it slayer fest and him and was like hope they're nice to you they're not big fans of spike they always have nasty things to say <laughs> 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 so like people still get real mad about it um it does feel slightly irresponsible of tara to leave dawn alone when dawn's getting kidnapped consistently uh like i get that and tara has every reason to be upset right but it feels like oh but you if i were tara i would have packed a suitcase and never <laughs> yeah. looked back like i would have been like what the f-? like <laughs> i <laughs> Like, it really would be, I mean, I don't know, maybe I have my own issues that I'm projecting here, but, like, the idea, the violation here is so terrible, and I really do think that, to the show's credit, it lands the beat so hard. Like, when she finds that that, that flower, when she realizes that she's been carrying around, like, dark this token yeah. of, oh, man, like, this token of her abuse, and, like, she puts it next to that textbook, it's like, oh, shit, like, what a messed up thing to do to somebody. And I guess if Tabula Rasa is the next day, then yeah. she did basically essentially pack a bag and leave. Like, yes, you know. but, but only after Willow tried to erase her memory again. Yeah. You get one more one more strike, Willow, and that's it. I almost think it lands Tara's hurt over Willow's spell better than it does Buffy's hurt over Spike's. Uh, like attempted rape. Well, the show didn't handle Spike's attempted mm-hmm. rape all that well in a lot of respects. So, yeah, yeah. but uh, we'll breeze past that because that's not for another yeah. few episodes. Oh, for a future episode, I'm not going to be on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who, wants, who wants to do seeing red? Is everyone claiming that now? <laughs> I'll be on it. I'll yell for three and a half hours. <laughs> so Dawn gets captured. I really like her dance scene. I think it's pretty good. What did you, Lewis, what did you call it? A dream? What? A dream ballet. Well, a dream, a dream ballet is like, you know, it, it's sort of a classic. It's very Rodgers and Hammerstein. All the musicals have dream ballets. Um, 
this is this is a little bit more of a serving a purpose because she's like trying to escape from a lair. But uh, it's it's you know there are these this is kind of classical feature of musicals where there is like an extended dance sequence, um, usually highlighting the, the themes of whatever's going on and and you know like Oklahoma has a big one and and Carousel and all of those musicals but um, singing in the rain has that very long one where he's yeah like, i mean there's just there, yeah there was there was a there was a time when we could sit back and enjoy a long ass ballet moment <laughs> uh when we had attention spans before we had twitter and um yeah i i also really like the dance the dance uh, sequence in this and um i think it's beautifully shot and it's like a, it's actually like a lovely moment and I, I i'm glad we get that over a song about Don's feces because, um, which I'm using ironically, obviously, I would yeah. never sincerely say feces. I thought you said feces. So did I. <laughs> I said feces, um, but it is also Don's shit, which is that she feels neglected because she's a key. What word are you saying? That's not feces. Feces. Her feelings. Oh, her feces. Like feelings, yeah. <laughs> feces. But um, I don't know. I think I think Dawn's asking a lot of everyone, given that she's not a real person, um, to you know treat her like a human being. It's also a ballet about being menaced by three masculine figures, right? Like yeah. it, it picks up the theme of the spike number again. Like the show is not not thinking about these things, right? Yeah. Like it's setting up the the dance is also prefiguring the like the sexual threat of the demon, right? Who's oh, going to yeah. make her his queen. Yeah. Sweet is a very, it's a very uh, seductive demon. Yeah. And his his henchmen are, are pretty uh, creepy and, and uh, you know. Is it just me? Did anyone else get, this is the first time I've seen this since like really listening to Hades Town, And it's like, oh, this is like, oh, yeah. there's a bit of Hades Town DNA here. Like Hinton Battle could absolutely play Hades. Yeah. That's not a bad. That's not a bad point. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you something you're not gonna be able to unsee, and I apologize right now. Blame my husband, but he said they. He said you do realize that this was heavily inspired by Jim Carrey in The Mask. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> oh, you're right. The zoot like suit. The, the, suit, the weird uh, elongated features. He breaks into. He pulls off his own mouth. Like, yeah. Oh, oh wow. Yep. Yep. That's why I hate that. You're welcome. But thank you. Thanks. I hate this. <laughs> you guys are all like Hades Town, obscure musicals. I'm like Jim carries the mask. Also, things I didn't realize until today. Hinton Battle is a three-time Tony Award yes, winner. Yes, And I also I, I love having an actual like some real. Not that everyone. I'm not you know saying that they can't sing. We've been over this. They can sing fine. But it's nice to have like as a contrast like a real musical yes. theater actor in there and like to see what that sounds like. Yeah. He's so good. He's so good. And also I think the facial prosthetics, like the mask is very unnerving. Like they did a really, really good job on him. Because he's beautiful too, right? Like he is a gorgeous object. Um, Now that you've pointed out the zoot suit is the mask, I'll never forgive you. But like (laughs) he's so visually striking and his body language, not just when he's dancing, but even just the the things he can do with his hands, just like the, reminds me of that like, um, Scarlet Witch and energy oh, yeah. that Elizabeth Olsen has. Oh, like, my thing where she moves her fingers better than any other actress moves her fingers. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, like there's actually very little like magic effect. You just know from the way his hands move that he's compelling Buffy to sing. Right. Like Anthony, you are you are hot for sweet. I think I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm fascinated. I kept trying to figure out like 
the moment where um, Buffy's like, you got a name. He says, oh, you got a hundred. It's like, I keep trying to figure out who he's supposed to be. Um, I do like the way he sort of accesses this like Hades Persephone yes. stuff. He's like, there's yeah. something like dionysus about him. Like, I think it's fascinating as a character and just like how quickly sketched it all is, right? Like he sort of indicates who he is in history without ever indicating who he is in history. I think that's so cool. I will say, I remember yeah. when I first watched, when I was like younger and would watch this episode, I breezed past this, the sort of the dance part a lot just because I was in it for the songs and I didn't really like Dawn and everything. And I don't know what it is about watching it now. And maybe it's just like, I'm on the other side of like loving dance reality shows or whatever. But like, I really, really, really appreciated what Michelle Trachtenberg does in that scene. And even just beyond the part where it's just sort of like her, like little dance number, but then just the way she reacts in counterpoint to sweet is also very mm-hmm. like good and smooth and just sort of just like, it's, it's a, it's a pleasure to watch the two of them sort of interact. Yes. I love his intro. I, another like critique is I would have preferred a little bit more of sweet, um, but I'm sure they had very limited time with the Tony award winning actor for the show. I wanted to read a quote from James Marsters about this. From that moment on, we were just flying high until Hinton Battle came to town. Hinton played Sweet, the villain of the piece. Hinton is a Tony Award-winning Broadway state, Broadway musical stage actor. This man has chopped. The Buffy cast was just standing there in the bronze, staring up at him, doing his thing on stage and realizing, oh, that's how you do it. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. I might just note that the script, Sweet is an adjective. Like That's what everyone calls him, but he's a sweet demon. Like The point is that it's like... yeah it's not his name it's not like meant to be his name it's just like that's what the the actors started calling him um i'm sort of fascinated by nameless characters like as <laughs> as a professional occupation so it's like it's neat to me that he is never at the at the the level of the text identified like he never gets yeah we never get an explanation really i uh i i, I do think uh, Ian, what you were saying about like you know not having a lot of time with him um I think it's less that like Hinton Battle was unavailable and more that like there's just a lot we have to cover in this episode. As you were saying, they try to give every character a moment yeah. in a song. And even with like an extended runtime, there's just not enough like time to cover everything. But it's interesting because like there are so many shows that have done musical episodes in which like there is no reason for it. It's just like they're all singing because like why not? Yeah. And you know, they kind of because it's Buffy and like this is a world in which like it's a heightened reality and demons do things like this we do get this kind of like explanation. And so we have like a character who's actually doing this. Um, But it's, it's interesting. You kind of want more. I I think Anthony's point about like how it's, it's fun that we don't know that much about him is great, but also like he's sort of fascinating and you you kind of do want more time with him and you want to know more of like what his whole deal is and how many like demon, how many spouses has he taken back with him to his like demon home? Right. I was sort of obsessed with Anya's line where she's like, it never works out. Maybe once. Maybe once. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. I want to know that story. Anya's lines are funniest when they really have no mean. Like, they have meaning, but, like, we don't know. You know, there's a world without shrimp or whatever it is. Like, we, we, it's better to kind of not know the full context of these things. She's just lived a long life, and she's seen a lot of shit. Mm-hmm. Um, in the commentary, Joss also says, they built steps for the bronze just so uh, sweet to do the little tap dance intro down the steps. So Spike brings in the puppet head dude who doesn't sing, which is a really great moment. We already talked about it. Giles here is, I I don't understand. This feels the most uncharacteristically Giles of all of his like, you need to get over it. Even though it's only been like, 
you know what, this has been like four days in a row. So presumably it hasn't been that long since she's been back. And it just feels a little unfair that he's like, no, you go save Dawn. Wait, do we skip over standing though? Because he had a whole song. Yeah, my favorite. The the double the counterpoint. Yeah. Yes, this is after. This is after. That's after. Uh, he first he sings about why he's he's making her do it herself. Oh, and then he, right. I thought it was okay. I thought the song was after he tells her she has to do it by herself. This is when she's training, and there's, there's that dual reality of she's going in slow motion. He's walking around her. Again, my only note is Buffy's insensible shoes. <laughs> <laughs> it really is like the only time. Yeah, I, like it was noticeable. I was like, wait, she's wearing shoes that would be appropriate for this activity. Like <laughs> maybe that. Uh, see, it ties into her depression. She's given up on wearing. It's <laughs> true. It's shoes. equivalent of like sweats or something like that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. But I mean, Ian, as to what you were saying, like I think actually that kind of applies to to standing as well. Like because it's a beautiful song, and and there is a point to it, which is that like having an authority figure is making it harder for Buffy to be an adult, but also yeah. like she's so young and like she needs Giles. It's we- it's weird that he is so adamant about like, I'm, I'm keeping you from being the person you, you need to be when like people in their early twenties who've just lost a parent might need, uh, might want someone around who's like older and more responsible to help. Them. Well, and paired with the, what happens at the beginning of the season where he like had already like pieced out to London or whatever. And it's just, you'd really get that impression of just like, what do you have waiting? Like you are really itching to like get over back across the pond. You had a spinoff that never happened. RIP. We might still get it. Uh (laughs) (laughs) You guys, I'm waiting for words. I've said this before, but I really sympathize with the writers. Like Buffy has just lost her mom. So you, you can't kill Giles, but you have to get him off the show because he wants to not be on the show. Right. Right. So, You, you have to find a way to get rid of him that is kind of impossible. Um, I don't know what they could have done unless they had... Maybe the solution would have been to have him have left a long time ago at the beginning of Six. Right. Like, he's already been gone like since she died. Back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. but And then, like, he does have a new life. Like, maybe he has a kid or, like, that Olivia is in his life now. No, that's not enough time. In the realm of things I took too seriously that, like, did legitimately, like, freak me out... Anthony Stewart had not appearing in the opening credits of season six through me in a way that like I maybe haven't ever recovered from just (laughs) it was jarring and bad and I hate it still. They love playing that game, right? Like Tara doesn't appear until she dies. That was the coolest cut of all because that was the one where there were rumors that she was going to die all that season. This is the number where you get the two best singers in your cast and actually let them sort of like go to town. All of my like favorite things. I fucking love a reprise. I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. The the rack focus of the two yes. of them, like he's oh my in four God. Back. It's, the, it's yeah, the best. Yeah. I actually think this is like my favorite musical moment in the whole Me episode. Too. Um it's 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 beautiful and they the way they come together. I also love the things that Joe loves. I love when characters are singing about yes. singing the same lines, but they mean different things because they're yeah. the different contexts. It's so good. My favorite version of this is in Phantom of the Opera when they sing Angel of Music again. Yeah. Like, wishing you were somehow here again and it's and it always gets cut in modern productions, and it's the best moment where the three main leads are singing the same yeah. melody on top of each other. Um, and I just love it here. It's absolutely my favorite sequence. And so heartbreaking, even though the Giles thing is maybe mm-hmm. not as earned as it might be, the Tara yeah. thing is absolutely earned. And like the mournfulness of it, like she knows it has mm-hmm. to be over and wishes it wasn't. Um, and just like having this moment to mourn it is so beautiful. I, I love it more than... 
anything really that tabula rasa gets off the floor as much as that michelle branch song is really yeah. working hard like this is the moment where it's like oh it's over michelle branch was always working hard for us we just didn't always realize yeah. it she continues <laughs> to do the most for us we just don't know but i i don't love that song but i do yes they are the two best singers and they very clearly you are don't the love two. that song why i I don't normally love musicals. Um, I always say Buffy's Once More Feeling is my favorite musical. Um, and I, I think it feels, it is very musical. Um, and maybe that's why. Wow. I <laughs> have to go. <laughs> Kirsten, are you going to tie break on this one? Uh, I think it's a great moment. And I think they take full advantage. Like you said, they're the two best singers. And I do, I love that reversal of they're singing the things they were singing before, but they have a totally different meaning. And then both looking at Willow and Buffy, neither of whom know something has ended. Yeah. And that's really heartbreaking because you're seeing the faces of the people singing. They know something has ended and it can never be fixed. And Willow and Buffy still don't. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a, I think it's a great moment. There's a way that this whole episode sort of brings the secondary cast to the front you know, like yeah. as much as Buffy opened the I Want song, it ends up just by the yes. nature of who has musical talent. It becomes reactive mm-hmm. to our two. Like if you season six's leads right. are Buffy and Willow, right? Like that's those are the people who power this season. And it's so much about other people yeah. watching them in, in such a fascinating yeah. way. Well, and, and Tara is so, so rarely given a voice in the series. She is the awkward one. She's, she doesn't have the same weight and speed as the other ones. Um, she, yeah. she stutters. She, so for her to have such a powerful voice in this episode and go from like the highest song to the most devastating moment. Um, I really, I really loved that. And I, I felt like it was such a good insight into her leading into the rest of the events of the season. Well, it's, it's, it's funny how just like the, the, the fact that she has a really good voice, I feel like forced her into this role in this episode, like Alison Hannigan, not yeah. wanting to sing and not being a good singer, like makes Willow take a back seat in a way that like, we might've gotten more of Willow's feelings about, you know, Buffy's revelation at the end and all of that. We don't hear Willow's yeah. song response because she can't really sing. And so yeah. it, it kind of like the people who can sing yeah. the best end up with the best songs. Yeah. That's Joe, do you, I know you always talk about the posting boards. This is something I specific, this season was when I like, cause season five was when I got back into it like full force and season six was when I started taping them on VHS and yeah. like kept track of them and like rewatched them a thousand times. I specifically remember the posting boards, like there being a theory that like, Oh, Willow didn't sing because she actually doesn't love Tara as oh, much as Tara loves her. And that being like a rumor that I remember just being like, but we know just yeah. Josh was like very from the beginning said like, Oh, Megan doesn't sing because she did not want to sing. And, but I remember people saying that on posting boards being like, Oh yeah, no, it's like, if you look at Willow's face, she's just watching her. Like oh, she doesn't sing. The message boards that I were on were like fiercely defensive of everything about Willow and Tara. So like, you couldn't speak anything that was like counter to that love at all. So um, yeah, I feel like like even at the time, everybody sort of watched the episode and was just like, yeah, she can't sing. They didn't want it. Like it sort of felt very obvious watching the episode, what the behind the scenes. I I remember, I remember on a message board, actually someone had a very long thought out take about how Willow's, I think this line's mostly filler is actually like reflective of her role in the season somehow, which first of all does not make any sense, but I don't yeah. remember the reasoning. And also it's so clearly a joke about her not wanting to sing, like, and that, that she just had to say something. Um, but it was, I was like, you maybe thought about this too much. Yeah. <laughs> this was the first episode I remember seeing 
literally seeing a lot of behind the scenes footage in the promo material where it's like, so we kind of knew, and part of that package was seeing that Alison Hannigan didn't want to sing. Like she, they upfronted that quite a bit. Um, I think to prepare the audience for this sort of, yeah speaking silence here Um, we were all we were all waiting for alison hannigan's power ballad and we never got it so we needed to to know that wasn't happening (laughs) the next song features giles who arguably has one of the best voices but they have him go like way lower than his range and it sounds awful which i don't understand because you know that you're writing these musical numbers for specific people so you tailor it to their range right it's like how lin manuel miranda wrote an entire musical around his not great range so that he could be the lead like he wrote himself into the lead and so when they when there's that where there's the there's that next number with giles where they have him sing too low and that that really baffles me because it's like you know what his range is why are you pushing him out of it are we talking about what, when he's singing and and walk through the fire? I, when so so they make Buffy leave by herself, right? Yeah, and then um and then they start singing again, and yeah, there's just this one line where they have him go way beneath his range, and he sounds bad. And it makes I'm me not mad. smart enough to know the part you're talking about. It's the part where it's like, "Am I leaving Don in danger? Is my Slayer too far gone to care?" And it's like very low. Yeah, it's very low, and it's too. Low. But before we talk about that, I just wanted to go back really quickly to Ian's point that it's ridiculous that Giles makes Buffy go by herself because yeah, it is. The whole re- there's a whole thing about how I mean I know Buffy just died, so this is not the best time to bring this up. But like the reason that Buffy lived so much longer than the other Slayers is because she had her Scoobies with her, like. Yeah, they there's a whole they they have they've been talking like throughout the series about how the difference between Buffy and other Slayers is she had these friends who worked with her who protected her who helped her and so it's very strange for Giles to suddenly be like you actually have to go fight this demon yourself because if not I guess we're holding you back in some way it's just kind of a nonsense like which he immediately walks back right like he immediately is like oh maybe yeah we should go. that's <laughs> what I think it's so funny how quickly he goes back he feels in this episode sometimes like a parent who read something in a parenting book and was just like oh I'm doing it wrong I gotta I gotta try this I've gotta you know push my kid out of the nest or something like that and then he's just like nope 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 bad idea let's go guys <laughs> and I like that Anya and Xander are the ones that are like no, but we, like, you know. This is the thing that we do all the time. Let's do it. Yeah. There's a funny way the whole number is designed, now that I think about it, to stagger their entrances for the yes. next number. Yes. Because yeah. not only do they depart after her, but we have that weird shot where Spike, like, turns the wrong corner, which is why he's yeah. late. <laughs> like, because he has to arrive last, So, but he leaves right after her. Yeah. So he has to get lost on his way to the bronze? Yeah. I, don't really, I don't really understand what that shot is meant to convey. But he, he like... He interrupts her number after they've all arrived. So well, isn't the thing late. that he like he just changes his mind like three or four times? But like, uh, no, I'm not. Oh yes, go. yeah, yeah, I'm gonna go. Right. But no, I'm not gonna go. Like, yeah, yeah. I also love this song. I I should maybe through the fire. It's like, amazing. I love. I, it. I I love the the previous song because I love when people sing their little reprise, and I love the Do you hear the people sing? Number. Yes. And so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or the one day yeah. more, I guess, is what it is. Yeah, it's actually. a very, very Act One finale. Even though we're actually kind of toward right. the end of the episode, obviously, it feels very much like an Act One closer to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I like so. See, I like this because I like that. Like, it starts with just Buffy singing, right, and then Spike, and then eventually everybody's singing. Um, and I kind of really love that. Uh, and in the commentary, Joss says how Sarah Michelle Geller doesn't get enough credit for coming into this with no musical experience. And how she sells it because of the authority she brings. 
which I was like, Simon Rashad Geller confirmed Dom, Dom top. And then he says like, <laughs> and then he says that Willow's, this line's mostly filler line is his favorite line that he wrote for the whole episode. And I was like, but you wrote like five different songs for this. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I just really like this number. I love, in the commentary, Joss says how hard it was for them to get and how it played, like perfectly played out with the fire engine coming behind the Scoobies when they're singing. I love that. And I, yeah, I love that moment. I just think it's so cool and like bigger than Buffy usually goes, right? Yeah, and I, I don't know. I, I also really love Buffy singing to Sweet. I think that is just really good. I don't know. Oh, um, the, the next number? the um... Yeah, like she like kicks the door open. For me, that feels, that all felt like a musical, not only with the music that's playing, but like, you know, Buffy's a shadowy figure. The door's been burst open and we just see them like looking at each other. That felt very like a musical about a Western almost, mm-hmm. but they're about to duel. Showtime, and then it cut to commercials. Yes, it yeah, was a very it's... tense moment when it was live. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing because I feel like for as much as Sweet is a very fun villain and a very like, it's, you know, I love this character. There's never any doubt that there's never a whole lot of menace, right? We never think for a second mm-hmm. that like he could win or he could do any like real damage to anybody and his plot is so perfunctory right right again like uh, the most well-worn demon trope ever right right but then because of that it's such a rug pull that like because i don't think watching the episode i certainly didn't expect that this was where we were all gonna find where they were all gonna find out that buffy had been in heaven right like i just figured they would like Mm -hmm. string that along for several episodes and it would be you know, a while before we ever sort of like dealt with that. So then when she says it, when she sort of like builds up to that moment, she actually says it, it really does feel surprising. But that's part of just going back to sweet for a second. Like part of the thing that I've never liked a lot about this episode um, is that I don't like the people dancing until they burn. Uh, I feel like, which we didn't even talk about really. I just feel like the, the idea of singing your kind of deepest fears and insecurities and secrets is so much scarier than dancing until you, yeah yeah we really the only reason that that's in there is so spike can save buffy at a pivotal moment which feels a little bit like we don't need it like i think it's it's just there's so much more damage done um you know emotionally here than than physically and also if we didn't have people bursting into flame we wouldn't have the awkwardness of xander inadvertently having killed a bunch of people yeah (laughs) yeah i felt like it was just there to put like an artificial ticking sort of countdown that they had to solve it you just think they needed something on the clock, like they're. I think they needed something. Yeah. On the clock. It makes yeah. sense. I, I get it. I just I think there's like, it's just so much more powerful. You know, obviously Buffy revealing that she was in heaven is like so much more brutal than like yeah. we know she's not going to combust. So that whole moment is like less yeah. interesting than her. You know. We already have fake stakes in is Dawn going to have to go down to the underworld and be his bride, right? So it's like it even feels yeah. redundant to that. Which, by the way, we, we yeah. know she's not, that's not going to happen, but a lot right. of people watching probably were thrilled with the idea of Dawn. <laughs> yeah, except jokes on them because that would have been her spinoff, so. <laughs> Which I would have yeah. watched. I Oh, speaking of, I feel like her her dress here is underrated. I think it's a very pretty dress. You're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's a perfect. Who's like, underrating it? Well, <laughs> I just, it. everyone talks about the Ren Fair dresses, and I never hear anyone say anything about this dress, which I love. And I guess he is sort of upstaging her with his color change dress uh, outfit. And I'm really mad that I have to think about the, the mask from now on. Yeah. Um, I don't like that so much either. <laughs> but it actually, like, it's sort of, 
the mask does the same thing, right? Like he ch- sort of cheats the rules of reality yeah. in a way that I can see how that happened, even if yeah. they didn't even think about it. Yeah. Um, again, like to me, this mm-hmm. number is all about how pretty it is and how that's sort of been Buffy's narrative is she's had to perform this sort of pretty melody ever since she came back from the grave. And like, yeah. now it's being absolutely thrust in our faces that she has to keep singing this pretty song that all the lyrics are about how she doesn't want to be singing this anymore. Right. Um, I just think it's such an amazing, as much as we were sort of getting grumpy about meta-ness, like the way this whole episode is about how we are forced to perform these lovely little performance pieces that have nothing to do with reality and how we're sort of going through right. emotions and like <laughs> all well, these and things. Well, she even like calls it out just like all these little sort of like ways we talk about life. And these cliches we talk about as, you yeah. know. And the moment he sort of punctures the screen and stares at us is so yeah. striking to me. As much as it seems like, isn't it fun to be invited to sing along with karaoke? It's like, no, this is about your life. It's such a discordant, like unpleasant song in so many ways. Like it's very hard to sing. And it's yeah. very, it's, it, oh, yeah. it, it just, I, I, I sort of love how unpleasant it is. Um, yeah. It's one of my, and the discord is coming from her, right? right? Like it's her fighting back. Right. Yes. And, and I think that like one of my least favorite styles of, of music that, you know, is much more popular in musicals now is like, this song is intentionally hard to listen to and sort of ugly and unpleasant, like for a reason, but it works so well in this context. And yeah. also like the, the whole song isn't like that, thankfully, but those moments when she's singing in that really awkward, fast way, um, obviously is like a very it's a very clear metaphor for what she's dealing with going through can i also talk very briefly about giles sending anya and tara in to do to back up because it's tara's name wrong every time because he's british well he's like he's english so he says tara and i find that charming um it's also it goes back to the witness arias thing about like the way that they all are reacting to this phenomena around them and like anya is trying to like build her own successful soundtrack album or whatever and but giles's whole thing is reacting in deadpan to all of this as if this is just sort of the way things are now and him just you 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 know he's under this spell but it's not just singing with him he's also like doing stage directions where he's just sort of <laughs> just like you know you go there now and you do this and the like the double entendre obviously of backup is one of those like cheesy things that sneaks up on you so much that you almost have to just like surrender to it because it's like you got me there i did not see that happening until it happened and good for you i love it i love it i love it i think it's like for me, it's like the perfect balance of absurd taken seriously that you can laugh at yeah. that Buffy does so well for me. And again, it's mm-hmm. Anya and Tara, not Willow and Xander, who are normally the yeah. two who would do backup. So again, talent yeah. wins in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also part of, it speaks to the, the the thing that they are doing to her life, right? Like the thing they need to do is stop her from having to sing this pretty right. ugly song. Right. And instead they're like reinforcing it, right? Yeah. Like she need it's the exact wrong kind of help <laughs> yeah yeah in the commentary just says that oh that he says that uh he knew where they were going with this episode and that he needed to he needed two things and he needed to have spike tell buffy to go away and then have him be the one to save her at the end so maybe that's why they added in the like dancing till you can bust although i really wouldn't have cared if he just came in and came in and stopped her from like manically dancing that would have also just worked i think uh, and got her to like come out of the musical trance. That would have been a way to save her. But I do love this. I love, I don't know. I love everything about once I get in the bronze, I think it's all like a plus. Um, 
So I don't have a lot to say other than, oh, I love this. <laughs> Are we talking about the, can we talk about the, the, the reveal of how it all, of who, who did this? Yes, sure. We've been, I mean, we've been talking about this like the whole time, but I think that like the, the moment, there's like this beautiful moment of like, and beautiful tragic moment of Buffy revealing where she was um, and Willow's gorgeous cry face, which we, you know, was so beautifully employed also, obviously in the gift. Um, and, and then we have this weird moment where Xander admits that he summoned Sweet and it is the weirdest part yeah. of the episode. It is so, um, it's like tonally strange. It's very jarring and it doesn't make any sense that he never would have spoken up until that moment. I think it could have been fixed with one more pass where he hears the details about this necklace and realizes he somehow accidentally did it instead of making it that he wanted to be in a musical. Like, I don't understand. It also doesn't read as part of his character. No, I mean, why would, like, why would Xander be the one who, like, it doesn't really make any sense. And also, like, if we're going to get mad at Willow for dealing with, for, like, fucking with people's memories, which is valid, then why aren't we madder at Xander for aside from the fact that he got people killed, like he also like made everyone expose their secrets in, you know, really traumatic ways. So perhaps we could be madder at Xander. Yeah. He never, perhaps we could be madder at Xander feels like the tagline to like, yeah. Well, I was going to say also when Buffy, um, when Anya eventually goes back to being a demon and, and Buffy's like, well, she cost human life. She has to die now. Well, so yeah. did Xander. So yeah. They- it's very weirdly glossed over. Yeah, I mean, Kirsten, I feel like we've both talked about that on this podcast, like how like the rules change for depending on how close you are to Buffy and how much she cares about you. It's true. It's true. Like, but I, I get, I get really, I get really fixated on stuff like that. Like, I stopped watching the Vampire Diaries because they were like, oh, it's okay that Damon and Stefan killed people because they're hot, and then Klaus came on, and they were like, oh, it's not okay that Klaus kills people, and I was like, well, he's just as hot, so if you're excusing people for being hot, why does his hotness not factor in? He was just as hot. So I stopped watching the show. And what I'm saying is Xander is not as hot as Anya, so he should be forgiven for less. <laughs> That's a good point. No, you brought up, you brought up the, the Anya thing in Selfless, which, like, not to jump ahead, but, like, you know, Buffy, of course, referencing that she had to kill Angel, but she also, like, let Angelus do a lot before she committed to killing him. So let's just, like, let's be honest about this. Yeah, because he, he like, did a lot, and, like, I was... Even Miss Calendar wasn't even the last blush. Well, I think it was I think it was the goldfish no. that, uh, that he, <laughs> it was Calendar was the goldfish that was the real last straw. But yeah, getting back to Once More Feeling. Um, yeah, that always felt weird. I feel like it just should have been Dawn, right? And it could have had it be Dawn, because, like... Anthony said, someone said earlier, she doesn't have much to do in this episode. So it would have made sense that she doesn't see how much like shit is going on. She doesn't have much to do. It would have changed nobody's perceptions of her. They would have still viewed her as exactly the same kind of like semi nuisance. They always do. It would have fit with the klepto thing. The audience wouldn't have hated her any more than they already did because they were (laughs) at max capacity. Like it was, it would have been the right call. It could have been an accident, too. I mean, she could have just stolen yeah. the wrong amulet or whatever right. and, and right. summoned a demon. We've all been there. We've all been there. <laughs> oh I, really, I really just was like, yeah, she could have just like gotten the wrong amulet and then a plot happened. And so, great, everyone's singing. Fine. Right, but, right. Um, yeah, or maybe like she breaks it and that's how Sweet got out. He was in an amulet. Whatever, sure. Um, yeah, it really should have been a mis- It should have been an accident. You can still make it Xander's accident, but it really should have been. Yeah. It's just like if you think about it at all, it almost punctures the whole show, right? Like it really, and it doesn't want to. It's, I mean, it clearly doesn't want us to think about it too right. much. Even Sweet doesn't think about it that much. We get the weird flutter of like homophobic 
joke, I guess. I don't even know what to make of it. I don't know what I'm supposed to think, but um, it clearly wants to get on to the we next needed song, a, right? We did that gay panic moment, though. What would we, what would yeah. we do without a, a little twinge of gay panic? Uh, <laughs> the other, the other. I uh, did like the little or... half a second where Sweet was just like, that yeah, might be fun. Yeah. Like, I kind of did appreciate if you bought nero his very first fiddle then you are yeah you're 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 in deep my friend (laughs) yeah (laughs) i mean he's a he's like a drama queen with different outfits just for one song so like come on (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah i yeah so i really like that they begin singing where do we go from here oh wait but can we talk about sweets reprise because it's really good oh right i forgot about that yes um Mm -hmm. because i think that this is my favorite use of like they did the episode title um, in, in the song. I think that um, Say You're Happy Now, Once More With Feeling is like such a beautiful gutting line um, and, and delivered so perfectly. Uh, and it totally, you know, recontextualizes the title in a way that we've been, we talked about earlier of like what that actually means. Um, it is, it is, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's such a dark ending for an episode that you assume would go to a happier place. And it's also like he won, right? Like he, yeah, exactly. He, the reason he just fucks off is because he's like, well, I did all the damage I wanted to. I can't think of too many Buffy villains who just absolutely win at the end of the episode, right? I gotta say that line. I, it's I've been so obnoxious with it. Every single time I turn in a draft or a sequel for my uh, Buffy series, I always title it "Once More <laughs> with Feeling," and uh, <laughs> my editor has just stopped responding to it at this point. <laughs> She's probably just like, like oh, yeah, I got it. Uh-huh. Buffy joke. Yeah. Yep. Uh-huh. It was not funny the first time. Uh, <laughs> I think it's very funny. <laughs> but it was so good when he said it. Uh, yeah. And so it also is weird that Buffy never even actually fights him. Like, there's no mm-hmm. fight at all. Yeah, she fights the henchman, henchman, but it's yeah. over in like But it's like seconds. a super quick and kind of dancey. And yeah. violently murderous. Like, they're, they're, they're mm-hmm. dispatched yeah. quite quickly. <laughs> which yeah. i like i like that his threat is entirely that that sort of vocal battle that they have like the song is such a good battle and such a unique thing that like i don't really need to see them go hand to hand i so are we there are we there them singing now i think y- yes yeah he leaves and then there's like that pause where they're all just like fuck and they're all just like staring off and like disassociating no one's doing anything and then they start singing and i kind of I think that's done really yeah. well. Like them, we get the shots of them looking depressed as shit. Dawn is the one to start yeah. the song. Oh, we got to sing one more time. I love the grasping of hands as a kind yeah. of dark chorus line mm-hmm. too, which was, it's fun choreography. And it's also, also that part was in every yeah. single commercial for the episode, which is kind of funny in that yeah. it's the last thing that you see. Well, the second last thing. And I, I kind of like the choreography there. Cause it's just like, them it is like you know they say like we walk alone in fear and it's them kind of like walking alone like no one's and then it they grasp hands and then they yeah. let go like that it wears off on spike kind of for yeah <laughs> i haven't really thought about the fact that it's in the bronze yeah before like it's interesting that buffy is a show that has basically as a stage at its heart, right? Like we're constantly in this musical performance space as, as the show progresses. And I kind of like, as much as it's like, let's save a set and just reuse the bronze. It is sort of perfect. And the way the show is so much, I don't know about you guys, but I was obsessed with the soundtracks for Buffy yeah. when they would come out. Like mm-hmm. to this day, I still like, 
all the music from Buffy is so keyed into my personality. <laughs> um, I like that we're in the bronze for this. I will say something I'm objectively right about, which is that Giles singing Tell Me is the hottest thing that ever happened on the show ever. <laughs> Very correct in that. Great, as long as we're on the same page about that. <laughs> Can you imagine yeah. how amazing his Rocky Horror Picture Show must have been? I know, right? That's very erotic. I know. <laughs> so then in the commentary, uh, Joss also says that he had to have them. He knew that the, the ending was that they were going to kiss. That had to be the end of this episode. And that he added the big fat red, the end with 20th Century Fox thing, thing underneath of it, because that's the era I love so much. That's like his direct quote about that ending. I remember watching this and being so shook that they fucking kissed. Like, I just remember being like, are they going to kiss? Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, they kissed! Like, that's one of the things I also like, because I I never thought she was going to go for him. I thought there was like, oh, we're getting scenes of them where they have good chemistry, but she'll never, I thought it was going to be like, he falls more in love with her and then goes crazy, which we kind of do get. But um, I didn't think it would ever be like, she seeks him out to like kiss him even little did i know in two episodes they'd be breaking down a house with their sex uh, <laughs> yeah what did we all think about that kiss i love how they match yeah. in that scene like they, they are wearing the exact same like color scheme um and i feel like you know as much as i have issues with spike and Spike's storyline and some of the retconning that they do in season seven um i feel like this moment is earned they it, Spike is genuinely the only person who has understood her through this and the place where she is, where she just wants to feel something. She's going for like maximum impact because she's going to feel everything. Like she's going to feel disgust and shame and, you know, all those things in one. And so I, I feel like it makes sense and I feel like it's earned. It's, it's also like, it seems really romantic because of the music swelling and everything, but she does literally mm-hmm. saying this isn't real but I just want to feel so like yeah. it's we're not meant to take it as her being in love with him like she he's in love with yeah. her obviously and has said that a lot yeah um, but she's but she's clearly just trying like grasping at anything um you know and and is doing this because she needs something which is apparently Spike's mm-hmm. dick as we love right <laughs> I agree. (laughs) At the time, it seemed like a very necessary kind of bubbling over of this, you know, tension that had existed for a season and a half, at least. And because of like the special circumstances of it all, I remember thinking like, okay, but like, it was still like, you know, whatever gray zone, magical time. Like it was, you know, certainly it's not going to become like a real thing. And I think because of the direction that it went, it's hard for me to watch that scene now and be like neutral on it. But at the time it felt like, and also the fact that like the fandom was just so loudly clamoring for it. I was like, they're never going to, they're not going to be able to not do this. So that felt like the moment to do it. I think that it also borrows the, the logic of the musical, even if it's not a manifestation of the spell, it's it's a manifestation of right. the logic of it. Like that it this isn't real, but you can make me feel like she's sort of appropriating the optics of love, the the or at least feeling. She's like she wants to, this is like a version of having to perform a song, right? Like to her it's just like she just wants yeah. to go through these motions, whether or not it can give her any sort of feeling of anything. Um yeah, I, it's in retrospect, it is weird how much in the moment it felt like this was a valid relationship when it's so obviously coded as like 
diseased and destructive from the jump, you know, like there is real, like really where this ends up going as much as it is so ugly along the way is sort of, it's already here. But, right? I, mean, like, but I think that the, yeah. the, to be fair, like a lot of that is, a lot of that is the fandom and a lot of that is like the way that there, this was like the sort of OT penis of them was projected onto a that was, that was supposed right. to be okay you, i could have phrased that better um, <laughs> he, he, you know it was it was i don't think it was meant to be a beautiful sort of willfully but misread I, yeah. but i also think that like the show goes back and forth a lot on them as uh, together and certainly season seven you you know with we're talking about retconning like there is their relationship has uh, was was played different ways depending on the context of whatever episode they were in and so i i do think that like Yes, it's clearly that it's toxic from the get-go, um, but sometimes it's played as being hot, and sometimes it's played as being like you know sincere mm-hmm. in a way that is confusing because yeah, the show very often seemed to buy into this whole like only he can know the darkness within her, and it's like right, right. like I mean I, I, I also think that like yeah. it, it's Spike so confusing because he's at a point where he's he's not, not he doesn't have a soul, but he can't you know he, he started working with them because he couldn't hit anyone who wasn't a demon. And Spike's, Spike's kind of whole right. redemptive arc was a little bit muddled until he got a soul because, you know, as we're told that a vampire without a soul is basically just a, like a, a murdering demon. Um, yeah. and, and, and it's a little bit inconsistent right. when we're supposed to believe that Spike is actually helping Buffy because he cares about her and not just because he's like obsessed with her and a selfish vampire. Right. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, I, that's the one thing I always say Angel did better, I think. Redemption? No, no. Showing... Like the show Angel, like always did better. The yeah. like, oh, there's a gray area. Not just because you're demon doesn't mean you're actually evil. Because like we had Lauren right. and we had Harmony. That show was always about like making tertiary yeah. like deals with bad guys for the like they made a deal with Lila every yeah. once in a while. They, you know, what's his face, Kane's character. But I, I do, like, but yeah. but I do think that the one thing that Angel did that was really irritating was treat Angelus as a totally separate entity from Angel. It was a, it was a little bit of a cop out to kind of treat Angelus as like this separate demon. And Angel is this like noble force for good when like they're all, when the whole show's about shades of gray. Well, and that but that was that had its root in Buffy though because that's how Angel was when Angel lost his soul. It was treated as he was you know the equivalent of somebody who was like possessed by a demon or like you know a, an alternate personality. And then because they wrote Spike, they wrote the rules for Spike so completely differently that it became such an apples and oranges thing trying to compare. I remember like constantly there were just these comparisons about like, who's better or worse angel or yeah. spike, like on a like human moral level. And it's just like, you can't compare. They wrote the rules for them. completely. Right. I mean, if a soul is just a moral compass, then like you can do good without having right. a moral compass, but it's good. And it's why it made no sense to give spike a soul, because what does that even mean in the context of like, you know what we've seen? Right. But spike. I mean, spike cares about Buffy because he wants to fuck Buffy. Spike cares about Don. Because why? I think that this conversation, I mean, I've always found this conversation so strange because it's, it's to me, not, I don't know why the show is so interested in this conversation. To me, like, Buffy has to kill people because those people can't be stopped otherwise. That, to me, is why Buffy has to kill. And it doesn't matter if the person is capable of moral decisions or not. Right. She sort of is employing this ultimate... You know, like, I don't understand why the show cares about whether or not their soul is valid. Like, if there was a human being using a violence that the police couldn't respond to, I think Buffy is within her rights to use lethal force against them, which she does occasionally, right? Like, 
the only people she ever killed were the what the knights of byzantium or whatever they're called yeah, yeah. well and that was the crux of the whole faith thing was like faith killed a human being and it was the end of the goddamn world <laughs> and then buffy like throws them off buses and stuff <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it was just like for technical reasons it's the fall that will kill you not me so. but I, I think i i think you're saying but i do think that the show had some pretty clear morals in terms of like you know who you could kill and who you could not kill and and why, I don't know. This is a weird thing to talk about in the the musical episode, but like why is sort of a question I've never really understood. Like is this you like angel. Up to the whole idea of like Buffy wouldn't think it would be cool to punch Nazis? Is that sort of where we're <laughs> kind of I'm I'm mostly thinking about the opposite, like on Angel, where it's like, well, this demon doesn't have a soul, but he's nice and everything. And it's like, okay, but is he killing people? Is sort of my right. question. Like right. I don't care if he has a soul. I care about is he right. employing a violence that only I can stop? That to right. me is what matters. So to try to like put a cap on this conversation, <laughs> I think that you're right, but the show tells us. So for me, I can I can like have my brain function within the rules of that the show tells us. And for me, the show tells us that's the reason I say that is because Angel does the show of Angel and even the introduction of Clem kind of in Buffy makes the rules that Buffy already set very muddled because mm-hmm. prior to that, the rules were no soul basically equals murderer. So you are a murderer if you don't have a soul, which all demons are, so all demons are murderers. So yes, if, they're, if they don't have a soul, then yes, they've murdered as well. The assumption is... Right, except for like Dalton, who liked to read. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that demon that Faith kills early before she kills the volcanologist, where it's like, that's just a nice guy who sells books. Like, <laughs> Right. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about how Dalton, he read and the judge was able to kill him because he had some sort of humanity oh, in him. right. So not to not to like throw back too far to season two, but I'm just the rules, the rules were often the rules were often muddied. So I guess we can deal with Spike's Spike and Angel having different rules about souls. Uh, so oh, um, I have a quote from the book to and to end the episode discussion. Um, <laughs> David Greenwell in this book interview said that Joss's assistant forgot to enter the musical into the Emmy nominations, which is a pity because it certainly would have won something. I thought the show was just never considered for the Emmys. Joss's assistant forgot. Talk about somebody we need to call up and cancel. Oh my God. From the future. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, can you imagine being that assistant? That's like, when's the deadline? <gasps> Yesterday, fuck. <laughs> I would be that assistant. That's me. Like, <laughs> uh, and that assistant was Fran Kranz. No, I don't know. <laughs> but now, One of the great villains. Now that we're there... Um, favorite outfit, Kirsten. I gotta go with Tara's Renfair dress. It's just too iconic. All right. <laughs> Joe. Um, Anya's entire bunnies ensemble, yes. including her hair, which is phenomenal. Uh, the butterfly top, that one. Yeah, I love that one. Uh, Lewis. Because it's underrated, I will go with Dawn's, uh, bronze outfit dress. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony. Uh, I I really I would have probably picked the Ren Fair dress, but I really really love Buffy's climax red top. Mm-hmm. I think her mm. her hair and her makeup have never looked better, and it's just like such a beautiful, simple, elemental expression of her character. I just love it so much. Um, I will say that reveal is really good when she takes off her jacket and it's like bright red. Oh yeah. So. I said that I think Tara's dress is the most iconic. That's probably true. Like, that's the outfit you think of when you think of Tara, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I always think, like, oh, she wore so many stupid, like, Renaissance Fair dresses. But really, this is the only Renaissance Fair dress she wears. She wears a lot of, like, 
long dresses with like coats and belts, but she never wears like a straight up Renfair dress like she does in this episode. But and also this like, appeared in her closet the morning that the that <laughs> sweep cast a spell. Yeah. Like it did not it was not in the world. Uh, but I think my favorite is Anya's ensemble she's wearing when she sings bunnies like you said mm-hmm. yeah. everything's, everything's working for me in that outfit um favorite song anthony uh i've already it's not hard well you know what it's actually the the giles and tara number i think they're their joint number but i i think the climax song the something to sing about song is so amazing and like such an amazing moment uh so those two okay joe yeah, it's the Under Your Spell reprise with Tara and uh, Giles. Tara. <laughs> uh, Kirsten? Uh, probably Walk Through the Fire. All right, all right. Lewis? I will also, I will also say that uh, it's it's standing slash uh, Under Your Spell reprise. Huh, all right. Uh, mine is Going Through the Motions. I just really love that opening song. And now we're going to grade the episode. We'll probably all have around the same grade. Uh, Anthony? Oh, it's just like nothing like this happened on TV before or since it's like a plus blood. Like it, it breaks the scale really like yeah. also to the point where it almost threatens the rest of the season. Like you can feel it pulling resources away from a lot of the rest <laughs> of the season just to happen. So um, well, it very much is this was the one where Joss was present and everything yeah. else was where he was. Well, not. I think it's a good thing. They put tabula rasa after this because at least, that's also a really strong episode. Yeah, the come down is more gradual that way. Yeah, because I think if we had gone straight into Smashed and Wrecked, it would have been like, oh, Ooh, God. <laughs> All episodes, some of you are going to be on for. Uh, Lewis, what grade do you give it? Um, I will give it an A with an asterisk, um, which is to say that like I think it was so important and so different and such a like an incredible influential hour of television, but also like revisiting it and talking about it has made me see flaws that I had sort of overlooked for many years. Um, but like, it's still an A overall. All right. Uh, Kirsten? Same as Lewis. A, but yeah, like there are some pretty massive storytelling flaws, which just goes to show how strong the episode is overall that you don't care. All right. Joe? Um, if Lewis is going to give it an A with an asterisk, I'll give it, uh, much like Sister Mary Clarence, an A with an attitude. (laughs) Um, it's, the ambition of it is so amazing. The fact that, like, it was such a trendsetter that, like, after this, all these other shows tried their musical episodes. And, like, I think of a show like The Flash, where it's just like, well, we've got Jesse L. Martin and Victor Garber, we've got to do a musical episode. And it's like, Buffy was like, we don't have Broadway stars, we're just going to do it anyway. And we're just going to jump right into it. It's the the balls on it is pretty impressive um yeah i think i think i give it an a plus i re-watching it i could see the flaws but still love it which i feel like says a lot about it yeah uh so i love it um which is most of my notes for this episode were i love this scene i love this yeah thank you all for joining us um i was really glad to be able to assemble this all-star scooby lineup if you like Slayerfest 98, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and some other places. You can subscribe to our Patreon, which really helps with producing the episodes, getting the podcast cover art, um, and everything else. You can follow us on Twitter at SlayerfestX98. If you want to follow me, I'm on all platforms at IanXCarlos. Kirsten, where can everyone find you? Uh, I am on Twitter at, at Kirsten White, on Instagram at, at author Kirsten White, and also my book Slayer, which is a Buffy the Vampire Slayer spinoff series, is out now. You can find it anywhere. Yay. Uh, Lewis, where can everyone find you? 
You can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Lewis Peitzman. Uh, and you can subscribe to my newsletter, lewispeitzman.substack.com. Joe? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. You can find my podcast at This Had Oscar Buzz on Twitter, where had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. And I'm also the managing editor for primetimer.com, where we cover television. So go find me there as well. Where I also freelance for. Uh, and- yes. <laughs> Anthony, where can everyone find you? Uh, you can find me on most things at Mia Koopa, M-E-A-K-O-O-P-A. And uh, as of this week, um, you can pick me up at comic book shelves. I'm in War Scrolls number two. Yay. Wiccan and Hulkling. Yay. Um, I drag brunch with Loki. And hopefully, if it sells well, we can do a larger miniseries. So okay. get it. Yeah, I hate you, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, thank you all for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.